good morning. Now, excuse me, but I told them, if you're going to cut me off, I don't want to speak. You let up a lot of people go on and on. You're going to let me speak? Steve, ask your question. You're on now. Okay, fine. All right. I want to mention three things about labor unions, okay? First of all, I'm a white-collar person. I'm as white-collar as they get. I double-majored as an undergrad in physics and math and got a master's degree in material science. I moved out to California in 1988, and I had to manage blue-collar people for a year. And that's what unions represent, blue-collar folks, all right? That was the longest year of my life, okay? They didn't care about learning. They didn't care about improving their skills and things like that. They could have cared less about that. They were just there to collect the paycheck. Of course, the bigger the paycheck, the better. That's obvious. That's basically managing the trailer park trash. That's who joins unions. Stephen, what's your question? Okay, that's the first. Uh, it's not a question. These are comments, like you let other people give comments about their histories. Second of all, inflation. Concerning, that's what unions generate. They generate inflation. I've worked, I live here at a condo in a high rise. I couldn't believe the things I was hearing about what I was not allowed to do in my high rise. I can understand not being able to do structural work, like pulling down concrete walls and things like that because of weakening the structure, and I should know what that is, being given my educational background. But I, about the only thing I'm allowed to do now is paint. Why is this? Simple, because the unions have bribed the town council and the uh, and the building uh, building inspectors to make sure that like we're not allowed to do stuff like that i can't even lay down laminate flooring in my condo third thing we hear all the time and this man over here from uh, the huff post should know this and i don't think he does we hear this now for going back oh i mean what 15 years how the workers are not getting the benefits of their productivity and that this started in the 70s but has anybody ever asked whether those workers were overpaid before their real wages started leveling out. All right, we'll put that to Dave Jameson. Uh, yeah, not not sure where to start there. Thanks, thanks for the call. folks welcome to left reckoning not allowed but uh, there we go yeah there we go man how's it going uh it's going well it's going well um today we are uh going to be joined by uh dr ben burgess who uh, uh just returned from class from office hours with uh charlie kirk taught him a little something about plato's cave um but yeah uh welcome david uh wednesday night yeah man i'm ready to be here Man, I'll tell you what. Uh, it's probably <laughs> out of all of the the um, the bullshit and the ungratefulness of that uh, th- that opening video that we just played. One of the nicest things that they were doing to him was preventing him from being able to uh, lay out some ugly ass laminate on his floors. I mean, that told you everything you need to know about this guy. He's that kind of person, just like <laughs> no taste at all and a hell of a lot of resentment. And it tells you everything you need to know about American politics that he called in on the independent line, because frankly, a guy like that could go both ways. <laughs> the Republican Party's too left wing for him these days. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I like that that's that laminate flooring inflation at 
Like that's your example. You can't put in Florida. That's probably because your high rise is owned by a giant corporation who doesn't want to deal with it when you move when they move your ass out of there. But yeah, and honestly, like um, union bribery with people, with people like that being the folks who are sort of tasked with standing up for working people. Sort of no wonder why we're in the situation we are in today. Um, very good to cast those people f- as far away from the labor movement as possible. We got a fun show for everybody tonight. We got in a little bit. Ben Burgess is going to break down, you know, some some highlights from his debate with Charlie Kirk. But we're also going to talk about whether or not engaging in these kind of conversations is worthwhile in the first bit. We might, depending on time, touch on Christopher Hitchens a little bit. But for all the people who are waiting for that, don't you worry. That is coming um, very, very soon. A, a full deep dive into Christopher Hitchens with Ben on this show. Uh, later, Matt has a, a bit on Peter Thiel. Um, sort of the dark origin stories of everyone's favorite bloodsucker. Well, actually, the more mundane origin stories than maybe the mythic version of Peter Thiel. Like you'd like to imagine Peter Thiel, like he emerged from sort of sort of Transylvanian crypt, uh, <laughs> like four hundred years ago, and got in like on some sort of good uh, investments early in capitalism. But really, he was your uh, average replacement level right wing hack talking about you know PC culture, mm-hmm. uh, and then he made friends with the right software engineer, <laughs> and now he's some sort of new Warren Buffett, but um, against wokeness. So, you know, it's funny sometimes when people talk about i don't know how cancel culture and like woke culture and all these things are new it's like this is the same kind of boogeyman that the right wing has been trotting out every generation they just call it something else it's like cultural Bolshevism mm-hmm. um or political right. correctness or now it's cultural marxism right it's just the same kind of thing uh over and over and over because they don't really have much to go on and we'll get into that a little bit more in depth with with ben in a while it's the same kind of thing i was i was noting to matt uh, before the show and the debate with Charlie Kirk, Charlie Kirk just kept on bringing up these really old, like eighties, nineteen eighties style talking points about the family unit and like how, like you know, if we just revive the family unit, then a lot of these problems will go away. Uh, study after study debunks that kind of mentality, and more often than not, more stable families come um, from better economic conditions for everyday people. Which boy makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah. But we got that. And then in the post game, I just want to say right now up front, because we're going to get into in, in the post game, we'll try to release it soon. Um, but I just want people to know my opinions on this, at least. Um, it's got to be a no on both of these bills now. The progressives, they have to vote no. I don't think that there's there's much left anymore after they have just been completely gutted. There's no reason for a, a yes vote. Don't let them uh, try to you know bully bully you morally over this kind of stuff in the next few days, right? Because they have gutted um, what was already inefficient attempt to deal with climate change and all of the other uh, problems that face this country. So it has to be a no. We're going to do an in-depth conversation of that in the post game, um, along with much, much more. Uh, we got a little bit of a visit of uh, Trump and uh, Bolsonaro, um, some fun stuff too. Uh, and as always, we'll be taking your questions. So to get that, join us at patreon.com slash left reckoning. But before we get to um, everything else. There are three stories um, that I wanted to highlight um, for us this evening. Um, they're all connected in their own way with one another, and they're specifically about what we are seeing done in our name. This is our legal system being used um, as a weapon against progressive politics, against socialist politics, against, frankly, um, the, the uh, a survivable planet. Um, and let's start right here uh, with somebody whose name y'all should all know by now. We've covered uh, the story on the show, Left Reckoning, um, Stephen Donziger, who 
has now had uh, to surrender himself uh, to the court. Again, this is a travesty of justice. This is somebody who is being, who has having a, a private corporation bring charges against him. Um, these charges and the sentence that is, has been levied against him are completely uh, uh, out of, out of, um, they're, they're, they're completely abnormal to anyone else who's ever been convicted of this, right? They're vindictive because he beat them in court. They're vindictive because he exposed the crimes against humanity of Chevron. Right. That is why they are targeting him. Um, and they have been waging a war against him and his family um, for years and years and years. And it is only because of the corruption in our legal system. Um, and frankly, you know, straight up bribery at this point. Um, from the get-go, the the <laughs> the um the case against them has been filled with people who take thousands and thousands of dollars um, from oil corporations or work for them in some form or another. I mean, this is nothing of, this is no example of like a fair and unbiased trial. These are people yeah. who essentially, um, you know, <laughs> paid hitmen of, of massive corporations. And if you believe in these kind of basic concepts of democracy, like a, a free judiciary, um, you should be disgusted uh, by what's been happening to Don Ziger. Yeah, it's a it's purely meant to send a message, and they're be basically even explicit about this. Like this guy needs to be mm -hmm. sent a message about uh, how you do things around here, and like even if they might be righteous in some limited sense, you still have to follow the law. And if you do it against corporations, you're going to be harassed. Until like this reminds me a lot of the Aaron Schwartz JSTOR thing yeah. at MIT. Like mm -hmm. Aaron Schwartz uh, basically accessed some files in JSTOR, a whole bunch of files through a program, got them all down. Um, off JSTOR as he was allowed to do uh, as a, a, a person on that campus. And um, JSTOR went after him with the terms of service um, and, and put him on against like 30, 40 years um, he faced in prison and he killed himself. Um, and that's what that, that like we have a legal system that likes to get people to kill themselves in this country. Well, when they threaten um, you know, exactly, yeah. property rights and, and, and profit. Um, for major corporations. Again, if people are watching this for the first time, uh, you can search on this YouTube channel. We've done a very long, in-depth conversation about the, the the kind of kangaroo court and the the targeting of Don Ziger. But I wanted to bring up three stories, um, his being one of them, to sort of highlight what's happening with our legal system, um, because this is something that should infuriate you, and it's something that should also worry you. Um, so this is earlier uh, this week, I believe, um, Julian Assange, um, another person who is being targeted by the state for exposing war crimes um, is now seeing the continuation of a of uh, of, of legal persecution um, that once started under Obama was continued by Trump and Biden is continuing um, as as well. Remember, Julian Assange, uh, High Court in, in the United Kingdom, found that extraditing him to the United States would be a violation of his human rights. And now the Biden administration, following in the footsteps of Donald Trump, um, is is continuing uh, an appeal to that decision to try to bring uh, Julian Assange to the United States, uh, where he will undoubtedly um, face inhumane and barbaric conditions. Again, all for the crime of exposing the United States atrocities abroad. I wanted to share this clip real quick. And Matt, rem remember to mute yourself when we do this. Um, this is from his partner talking about some of the other things that the United States has been trying to do to him and people around Julian Assange. I'll edit that later. 
we're meeting uh, five days before uh, Julian's, uh, before the U.S. appeal at the High Court here in London. And I want to remind everyone that Julian won the case on January 4th, and uh, the Trump administration, two days before leaving office, um, lodged the appeal and uh, Julian's bail application was refused. So he's been in prison, in Belmarsh prison, for over two and a half years. In the last few weeks, the mask has fallen in relation to the case against Julian. It's fallen because there was uh, an article, well, it's been progressively falling over the years. Um, there is no case, as others have said. This is just a naked political persecution. But there was an article published by Yahoo News just a few weeks ago, a 7,500 word investigation with over 30 sources, named and unnamed, high level sources from uh, current and, and past US administrations, from the National Security Council, from the CIA. And that story revealed that the extrajudicial assassination of Julian in London was discussed at the highest levels of the US government. That the seventh floor of the CIA in Langley, which is the director's office, requested sketches and options for how to kill Julian inside the embassy of Ecuador. They talked about kidnapping him too, about rendition, Rendition, extraordinary rendition, which is what the CIA developed to kidnap people and take them across jurisdictions to disappear them and then put them in a black site somewhere. And the embassy was essentially a black site towards the end. I felt that anything could happen there. I want people to really let that sink in for a second because... This is being done in our name. This is our government. This is our legal system. These are people. We all know that the CIA is essentially a rogue agency and has been so for a very, very, very long time. But ostensibly, people still consider them to be an extension of this democracy, right? And that, at this point, um, you should you should see what that ugly side is, because it is not something a system that's out there protecting you or protecting anybody. It is out there pr to protect the imperial interests of the United States of America, um, and to cover up and to threaten people who are willing to take the extraordinary risks that it takes in the society uh, to expose war crimes and crimes against humanity. Yeah, and I like the emphasis that this is a criminal cabal we're basically dealing with people, and it's been operating for uh, decades and decades. And that's an even like truism among among liberal discourse, right? Like everyone sort of knows the old like seventies Seymour Hirsch revelations and stuff like that, the uh, the family jewels and stuff. Um, but then it's just like at some point it changed, and then it's actually like now it's doing good stuff but no it's it's still the same sort of psychos that are still planning uh assassinations and kidnappings blocks away from buckingham palace right mm -hmm. like and and like and where it stopped like is that because the brits thought like it wasn't any sort of moral qualms it's the brits thought that's going to look bad to, uh, yeah. on us you can't do that in our backyard and and that was the thing that was getting when she was talking about you know the situation within the embassy i mean you know the fact is is that this problem and, and this kind of complicity goes way beyond just the United States of America. Um, you know, and, and again, this is people, 
again, we did the same thing with Donziger. Like these cases are really um, in depth, and there's so many storylines here. Um, but we just want to highlight something. That, like this is just like a you know three strikes you're out moment for the American judicial system um, in, in, in one week um, where, you know, remember Julian Assange is not even at a United States citizen or somebody who was in the United States during any of these times. Yeah. The United States is essentially saying to the world that if you do some things that upset our security state, right. Our, 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 our that, the app, that apparatus of our state, we will hunt you down with every power that we have. Right. Yeah. And either drones or lawyers. Either drones or lawyers, and more often than not, the lawyers um, can can do a lot more um, without the same amount of public um, outcry, right? And we're going to bring Ben Burgess on in just one second, but I wanted to highlight just another thing that's happening in our judiciary system that we just need to be aware of, right? Um, this is a strike that we've been covering for a very long time down in Alabama, um, the Warrior Met strike, which I believe has been going on for seven months. This just happened this afternoon, uh, Jacob. Uh, you should definitely check out the work, um, the value of labor report. Also, Graham, uh, Kim Kelly, sorry, uh, Kim she Kelly's uh, work as well on this. Um, but this is uh, guys back on again. A striking, a striking miner in Alabama just uh, posted that a judge has now forbidden all pickets in the Warrior Matt Cole strike. Strikers are being told to get off the picket line by 5 p.m. or they they will be arrested. And this is the picture of the um, of, of the ruling. And look. There's always some snotty-nosed nerd out there who's going to sit here and say, well, they can challenge it, and blah, blah, blah. These things are meant up to be a chilling force. And if you've seen the uh, personal abuse that these workers have been facing in Alabama and all across this country, by the way, uh, when they are exercising their right to strike, their right to picket, their right to freedom of speech, right? These <laughs> court rules are meant, even if they get thrown out later, are meant to silence dissent. They're meant to, they're meant to intimidate and they are meant to break people's power, right? It doesn't matter what the final, like, because this is not a legal journal, right? This is real life, right? It doesn't matter what the final decision is, right? After appeal, after appeal, after appeal. When you right. put in these kind of chilling orders, it's an attack. And I don't understand why people think that that is a reasonable political argument to be making in the first place. Because they're so detached from their actual real world implications of this. Like you have to think of these things like fucking like a campaign, right? Like into like a, like a, almost a military campaign. There's a certain amount of resources you have, a certain amount of energy you have over a certain amount of days. Mm -hmm. And they know that, if, yeah, like you just piss around in the courts. People are going to lose. And it's and like this and, and stop you from picketing. This is exactly the same day when somebody in the John Deere picket line was yes. hit by a car. And after the John Deere, and it wasn't by like a scab, as far as we know, Jonah Furman's reporting on this. But my understanding is that they've asked for uh, street lights um, to mm -hmm. be fixed. No, just like the cities were denying, um, you know, were messing with stoplights, or sorry, the county was messing with stoplights outside of Bessemer when the Bessemer, Alabama. Amazon union drive is going on. The point here is, look, that's a lot of heavy stuff that we just had to go through. The point here is one to, to not just see like, here's a bad news story. Here's a bad news story. Here's a bad news story. But to start to put on your Marxist cap a little bit and start to recognize how our opponents use the state apparatus. And in this case, it's the judicial system. In this case, it's the legal system to wage class war, to wage, to wage imperialist war, right? And I'm not going to sit here and say we have the answer to how to combat this on every level. But this is the kind of awareness that we have to have if we are ever going to be able to overcome the historical obstacles that we have in front of us. Um 
and we'll, there'll be much more on it. But I just want people to start thinking a bit bigger and understand that these things are not just connected in the sense it's like good versus evil, you know, like working people versus corporations. But tactics are similar, and the the board is set in a certain way. And understanding who the players are and how they utilize that power is really critical if we want to build movements that can confront that. Because the fact is, is that it doesn't matter how different all of these fights are, right? Like one's an environmental fight um, where somebody is exposing, you know, Chevron's, uh, you know, crimes in Ecuador, right? Um, another one is somebody exposing American war crimes, you know, abroad, right? And the other one is people standing up for fair wages in the United States of America, right? But across all three of these, there are similar systems and structures that are used to sort of smack down any kind of oppositional effort to their 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 power, right? And understanding that connection is really critical if we want to break it. Absolutely. Well, um, to sort of provide us, um, this this is still going to be very serious and high stakes, um, but after sort of going through those heavy things, we're really excited to be joined by our friend Ben Burgess. We will be right back in about 10 seconds. All right, everybody, I just want to make sure I had all the videos set up because we have some live footage. And uh, without further ado, let's bring on our friend, Ben Burgess. Uh, how are you doing, Ben? I am really good. How are you? We are good. I hope you're liking the new setup. We're still sort of learning the, the ins and outs of it, but it's been uh, pretty fun. It's good to see you, brother, man. I'm really, uh, I really enjoyed watching your, uh, your lessons last night to the little student, Charlie Kirk. <laughs> It seemed like it seemed like it was a pretty interesting. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, could you tell us a little bit? Uh, maybe I mean we're going to get into the structure of the debate, but could you tell us a little bit about the experience and like where it was filmed and all that kind of stuff? A little behind the scenes preview. Yeah, sure. So um, it was filmed at the Turning Points USA studio in Phoenix, Arizona, which. Uh, you know, feels very strange because uh, I have seen Charlie interview Donald Trump uh, and he starts the interview by saying, welcome to Arizona. So even though the background looks different, I'm sure it's somewhere else oh, in that wow. building. <laughs> but, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, like, like I, especially because a couple weeks before I was in, I was in New York and while I was there, um, you know, I got to see the uh, where the uh, Jacobin offices are in Brooklyn, and you know, even though I've been you know writing for them, but on the masthead for you know a while now, mm -hmm. uh, you know, most of that was in lockdown, and you know, I, I never I'd never gone over there before, and so that's like one floor of a nondescript building, and oh, just luxury, there, just luxury, <laughs> luxury. It's like it's like Tory Burke. Uh, like while I was there, Boscar was nice enough to like get together a party on the roof, which was great. But like mm. the financial outlay for that was like ordered a pizza. Like, <laughs> like I, 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 I guess somebody else also bought some beer, but like that, that was, you know, that was that. Um, I, uh, can I just say like, not to bash Jack and offices too much, but I went there to spec out a, a studio for um, uh, something I think Michael was going to do there. I can't remember exactly the, the scenario, but uh, not the greatest place for a studio. So. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I think like, while I was there, you know, like what it like the door to be kept open, like was being like the door to the hallway was being propped up with a broom. Uh, so, meanwhile, uh, Turning Points USA building in Phoenix, they got their own building. It says Turning Points USA, giant letters on the outside. You 
go through some sliding glass doors mm-hmm. and there's uh there are like turning points usa floor mats and uh and the uh I, this was funny enough i actually had to take a picture of it the uh like the men's room has the turning points usa logo on it very uh, weird <laughs> and um i mean presumably the women's room does too but uh but it, it's just like everything there is plastered with it and there's a green room and actually advanced, I had like a writer, a special food or drink request. And uh, I was tempted for half a second to like ask for some crazy rock star shit. You know, I went the bowl with like only round M&Ms, yeah. but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I like a chump. I said, nah, I'm good. You know? <laughs> oh man, you should have gone big. They got the money. I mean, uh, there's no doubt about it that they have funds behind that whole operation, but I don't know. I, I, I don't mean to, to bring you on here to sort of bash the whole operation too much. We've got to get onto the, the substance of the debate. But I was, I don't know, I, I found the studio to be a little shabbier than I had expected. I thought that the green grass on the floor was very strange. I don't know. I mean, it seems like they had the money to do what they wanted, but I don't think they had the kind of aesthetic eye to sort of build a beautiful <laughs> stage. But uh, I will force yeah, they should bring, they should bring out a better designer. But uh, but the, the fundraising is clearly, you know, the um, design maybe has room for improvement, but, you know, the, the, the fundraising, like whoever's in charge of that, they, they got it. The right, is, the right is getting better at interior design and the left yeah. is terrified. But to pick on what David said, like, I was impressed Charlie took the debate. I think, like, mm-hmm. to credit Charlie a little bit, he's more competent than a lot of the uh, his class, frankly, of uh, pundit. Um, he debated Sam Cedar, obviously. He um, he'll, he'll take mm-hmm. these debates, um, and yeah. So I'm curious, like, what was because Charlie, you know, he brought his binder of notes to uh, your office hours. <laughs> I'm curious, like, what the preparation, what was because it's always like one thing people have to ask. Because um, I think the key thing about debating people is to know what you're walking into. Mm-hmm. Right. And like what sort of what sort of constraints are being placed on it? Who has final edit? That sort of stuff like that. So I'm curious, like the lead up to it, um, mm-hmm. how did that work? Yeah. So I guess I should say for anybody who's not familiar that uh, the way this originally came about was that uh, there's an organization called Town Circle with an S that's like a debate hosted website. And what they do is they uh, raise money. It's like it's like the structure of GoFundMe that, you know, the pledges are only collected if the thing happens uh, for people to uh, donate to charity. And we actually ended up raising enough apparently to buy like 11,000 and some meals. uh, And, and kind of it, we were pretty sure that it was not going to happen. Like I did an episode with Mm -hmm. Nando and Jason miles um, just before it was supposed to expire. I was like, all right, well, this is about to expire. Let's at least do, you know, do an episode of like, you know, Kirk debunking and stuff like that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. give a little last push. And then at the last minute they accepted it. Um, So I do, I do give them credit for that. Uh, The, in fact, I think the very last thing I say, so there was the, the kind of main debate, uh, which was uh, recorded as an episode of his new show, Debate Night with Charlie Kirk, and that there was basic, essentially like a post-game hour. Uh, and uh, he put out the whole thing on his personal channel. And we were, like, when we were kind of negotiating about it in advance, you know, they said they'd give the whole thing to us. And, and you know, there was a lot of, like, okay, but, like, really, this is, like, every minute of it, right? Every word. And they, they, they said they would, and, and you know, credit where credit is due. You know, they kept it. I mean, like, like what I reviewed, it's like, no, that's that's definitely everything, mm-hmm. um, inc- including actually, it's kind of funny because part of what they sent us was the raw footage 
that uh, includes, I posted this on Twitter, like I just clipped it out, uh, my wife Jennifer coming up to me to, to, to give me her review, you know, in between the, uh, the, the main part of <laughs> the, uh, the post game. Uh, so not that much shows up on the audio, but I think you get a general tone uh, that, uh, that, that we both thought it had gone well. But, uh, but, but I was just going to say like um, in um, the, yeah. So, so I think that, he does get some credit for it. In fact, the very last thing I say at the end of the bonus half is, you know, sort of on one level, I'm being nice. On another level, I've, I'm being kind of mean to other people because uh, the, the, one of the last things I say is, hey, I'll give you credit for actually doing this. A lot of conservatives, you know, don't yeah. seem to be interested in, you know, in doing the same thing. Yeah. No, and I think, and I think it was. I mean, it was really telling. I mean, it was interesting to see somebody have to 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 engage. And I think let's get to some of the the actual like content from the the debate. We have some specific clips from here, but feel mm-hmm. free to you know bring up any specific points that you'd like to sort of yeah. you know rehash. But I mean, it's one of those things. I don't want to sit here and do like two hours of watching it and pausing it, but you really could stop it um, throughout because Ben is Ben, uh, you know, uh, you're, you were really on form uh, throughout. I was, I thought you had a great showing. Mm-hmm. I want to highlight some of the arguments that I thought were really strong, especially when dealing with, with conservatives. And this first one um, here is uh, I hope is the right one um, is on a, uh, is a bit about um, freedom and health insurance, which I thought was a really good point. You know, when we talk about things like healthcare, oftentimes people on my side will emphasize the fact that life expectancy is higher in places like Canada, the UK, where they have socialized healthcare and infant mortality. And you want to talk about families, you know, people's babies are less likely to die in places like Canada, the UK, than in the United States. And mortality amenable to healthcare, which is a stats nerd way of saying that you're less likely to die from treatable diseases is lower in those places. And I think all those are true and important, but I don't think it's the most important thing because most of us are not on the verge of dying most of the time. Most of us are not worried that our babies are going to die most of the time. The biggest way, I think, that not providing everybody with health care as a right affects the lives of most people is that it makes us less free because people are a lot less likely to leave jobs that they hate if they're worried about, will I still have health insurance? Will my family still have health insurance? People stay in those jobs and don't pursue their dreams all the time because of that. There are people, you know, I think people who are in good families and they want to keep them together, absolutely, they should be able to do that. But there are also people who stay in bad or even abusive marriages because they cannot afford to lose their spousal health insurance. And so I think that I think that we get we're not only happier and we not only live longer, but I think we're also freer if we take care of those things. So that, that's an interesting point. And what you're articulating as before we get into the back and forth here yeah. um, is what Lyndon Baines Johnson would call freedom from necessity, mm-hmm. which is something I take exception with. I, I do not believe the state should play an interventionist role in saying that it is the role of government to say that you should be free from wants or necessity. I would argue that through a national natural rights compact that you should be free to pursue virtue. And that's not to say you shouldn't have a social safety net, which far too often becomes a hammock at a social safety net. But I think the design of government and the state, which is really what we're debating here, right? What is the what is the role of public policy should be supporting things that are objectively good for people, 
for children, for the nation, and for the country. And so I'm happy to go into the th- kind of three categories that are common points of Democrat socialists next, healthcare, union membership, and kind of the development of unions and minimum wage laws, because I would argue that some of your policy prescriptions do the opposite. They don't actually help working families. They actually raise prices. And then we get a very funny kind of newsreel music plan. <laughs> what are you going to say, Ben? Yeah. Uh, so, so just to give a little context for this exchange, the reason that when I was talking, I kept talking about families is that the way the debate started was that I kind of gave the, you know, the two minute opening statement, which is what I had that like, I'd, um, you know, was essentially the reason that I wanted to do this debate in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. Like this is like the main thing I wanted to say to him, which was, and kind of get him to answer to, which is, Hey, you say you're a populist. That's how you brand yourself now. Uh, But if you're such a populist, uh, why aren't you supporting, you know, raising people's wages and giving them health care and making it easier for them to organize the union so they can have some say? And in his response, when he was trying to define what conservative populism is, essentially the main thing that he was doing was just saying the word family a lot, right? Family yeah. is valuable. Family is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and so I, I kept kind of trying to tie it back. That's like, okay, great. But like, what are you going to actually going to, yes, families are not. I, I I agree, right? We probably disagree about which things count as families, but whatever. Like families are great, you know. Like uh, now that we've established that point, can we talk about what we're going to do to actually help them? Mm-hmm. Well, it's so that's so funny in the context of two things. Um, one is this: Did you see this um, dad's on duty thing in Louisiana? Yeah. We don't have this clip, but it's basically like there's a whole bunch of violence issues at this Louisiana high school, and instead they had a bunch of dads come instead of cops, a bunch of the dads come and basically like be in the hallways. And lo and behold, that actually did something for violence. And it's just clear that like like they shouldn't be at their boss all the time. Their family needs them more. That's just a good microcosm of the society. And, all. and also in the context of the parental leave thing, people just confuse that a dad would want to spend time with a newborn. Like I know a new dad and that parental leave policy that his business had was one of the most like magical time of his life. Cause he didn't have to care about work and he could just mm-hmm. bond with like, I mean why that you need to spell this out is amazing to me. Um, but yeah, th- this family thing, like, can this can an interventionist state do stuff for families or no? No, I mean it's the only social organization that they truly believe in, um, which is <laughs> which is frankly funny because it's the one that uh, you know this it's the hardest for the state to sort of touch, right? right. Um, I mean I don't know. I mean the thing that was funny about the debate is like I mean I, I noted the family stuff uh, too because Ben actually has a really good opening about you know why some of the, you know, what he calls like baby steps to socialism um, would help out, you know, the people. And if that's something that you care about, um, then, you know, you should be a socialist or democratic socialist. Um, but it was democratic funny. Democratic socialist is apparently the term. I was about, about to say, well, he's, and the thing is for people who didn't watch the debate the whole time, I, I, I kept that clip going a little bit long because we're not going to be playing too much of Kirk here. And this is not because we're afraid of his arguments or anything like that. It's because he pretty much does the same thing where Ben makes a point. And then he says, interesting. 
Um, and then he asks him another question, right? And then, you know, or and quotes then, like oh, LBJ or the Black Panthers or something yeah. like that to say, well, this is a contrary view. Anyway, who knows? Let's go to the next thing. Here's a quote, like a random quote, sometimes out of context, sometimes just throwing it in there. Um, and then would also continue to call Ben a Democrat socialist, um, which I do not think was a mistake. I think that was very much like trying to oh, yeah. tie you to the toxic brand of, of you know, mm-hmm. being a Democrat, which none of us are. Anyway, um, yeah, no, absolutely. Some of the quotes were pretty funny too because um, I, I don't want to be like I don't know. I feel I feel mean talking too much about the binder, but like the binder was funny, and uh, and I want to read it. I would be <laughs> I curious know too. Let's to read that because I was curious where this. You know, I wonder how much of that that binder is like filled with Stalin stuff, which Ben was mm-hmm. not going to. Ben's not the guy to like hit with Stalin things, you know. But I bet you there's a bit, big bit. Well, there. although it's funny, right? Because he didn't actually bring in Stalin. It was actually surprising. I think I was thought I was waiting for that the uh, whole time. Yeah. But he did like at one point. He was trying to like pin me down to some view that I was supposed to agree with. He actually starts reading a quote from Woodrow Wilson, and I'm like, "You, you <laughs> think I like Woodrow Wilson? I mean, the, the, the guy who like put Debs in jail for opposing World War One. You think that's my guy?" Yeah, that was very funny. No, but like, I mean, let's. I, I'd like to explore this a little bit. I mean, not to get too behind the scenes, but um, I, I think this freedom point is 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 really crucial. Um, and it's it's actually like there's a lot of openings that we have as the mm-hmm. left to sort of own that. I think a lot Absolutely. of people are so timid about owning, um, you know, the c- kind of talking about, for example, personal freedom. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, Oscar Wilde has that great quote, right? It's like only under socialism can like, you know, personal, what is it? Selfishness, um, the, the exact phrasing that he uses, but like, you know, like the art of like living for your own self, mm-hmm. right. Can only right. ever really be achieved under, under socialism for the material really reasons that Ben, uh, you're sort of noting there when you're saying like, yeah, you have a lot more freedom when you're not worried about losing your health insurance. I'd also note not that this would convince Kirk. This is one of the big things that you saw in, in Bessemer, Alabama, when they did the postmortem as to why people did not j- want to join the union, um, it wasn't because they didn't think that the union was good or that they didn't even want a union. It was because they were afraid that Amazon would take away their health insurance and it would take too long to negotiate, you know, health care for themselves. Right. So in that sense, their personal choice, right, is being infringed upon by the market. And I think that there's a lot of a lot of space for us to start trying to say, like, you know, y'all are not the party of, 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 of freedom at all. Y'all sort of represent a movement of, of unfreedom. No, exactly. I mean, that this is uh, like what and, and actually there's a part of the debate where we do very directly get into this because uh, he he starts talking, you know, talking about Norway and in the course of it, he uh, he says some, you know, he's doing the usual conservative thing where on the one hand, it's, it's the meme, right? On the one hand, they want to say there's absolutely nothing socialist about Norway. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's like we can't have all the Norway stuff because that'd be too socialist. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and in the course of that, right, he kind of brought up the, I don't even remember, is the AEI or Cato or mm-hmm. you know, one of those, you know, their freedom index where Norway is or the freedom index. And, uh, and, and you know, the, the point I tried to make there is like, yeah, but I mean, what, okay, First of all, methodology of those lists is always bizarre. Like the mm. like uh, abortion rights doesn't get you any points, but like allowing raw milk does. It's all shit like that. But like also, yeah. <laughs> um, 
the more important point is what those guys mean by economic freedom is exactly the opposite of what we mean. And it's the opposite of the kind that would matter to most people that, you know, what they mean by economic freedom is the freedom of business owners to do whatever they want with their business, which is not only completely different, but like very, very often at odds uh, with the freedom of the people who work for those companies to do what they want with their lives. And I would add to that too, just while we're sort of addressing his main claim about the family, right? And like that being the unit. Again, I don't, I think, you know, it's important not to lean too far into that on our side, mm-hmm. um, you know, just because it obviously is like an extremely conservative notion that the only thing that matters is, you know, women and men having babies, you know, that kind yeah. of thing, right? Which, and push back against, I think, very well. Um, but, you know, we should also want to live in a society where people who, who want to have children yeah, of course. are able to do so. And I think this actually is a very socialist um, kind of conception as well, uh, frankly, a, a very basic one. Um, but when, when we're talking about those policies, like later in the debate, um, you know, he talks about some f- form of where he sort of pushes back against the bosses, which is that he thinks that, you know, maybe people don't have to work too much, right? So like, oh, you know, not having to stay at the office, you know, an extra 10 hours a week when you could be playing with your kids, like allocating time better at the workplace. Um I'm sorry, like if you're saying that you're a pro-family person, I think that there's a much more attractive argument to be saying, hey, we should be providing money um, to people who are having children so that you can buy them nice things. We should be providing um, paid leave and vacation so that you could spend, you know, formative memories with them rather than just this kind of like immaterial point about like, oh, I think that dads should have to do less overtime so they can be with their kids. It's just not a very convincing, like, do you know what the family's like kind of? Especially because notice what he's not saying. What he's not saying is how he's going to bring about that result. Mm -hmm. Like, he he doesn't like it that uh, people have to spend, come in for an extra 10 hours the weekends, they can't see their kids. But it's like, okay, so do we we have a Charlie Kirk policy for addressing this? Uh, I haven't heard one. And and I I think like I've got one. I I want to make it easier to organize a union so you can like negotiate stuff like scheduling. Uh, Like that would actually help with that. I don't know what he wants that would actually help with that. Not to even mention, I mean, obviously. uh, In fact, I really liked it the day after we finally got to air this because the the deal was that uh, they were going to wait until the twenty first and and you know part of the part of the agreement was that they were going to get to air it first, but. Uh, you know, so we, you know, the next episode we had was on the 25th. And the day after that, you know, Bernie Sanders had this great tweet about the number of paid, number of, uh, of, of days of paid uh, leave, you know, that like new moms get in all these different countries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like down in like the 30th place or something. It's like United States of America zero. It's like, okay, well, if you really care about what Charlie Kirk says he cares about, I mean, this seems like an obvious place to start. Yeah. yeah, the the um, I looked up the wild quote. It was socialism will be of value because it will lead to individualism. And mm-hmm. I think we, if we have that clip um, about the the nationalizing the oil industry, yeah, right? I have it ready this, right here. This is a perfect example. Like we could nationalize this stuff and pay for this stuff for families, right? And it's and I, I love first the meta comment is I love how eager charlie was for agreement on things here like mm-hmm. like i don't i'm not i'm not defending the farm industry and all that stuff right like he'll he likes to put his I, I, endlessly fascinated by that uh sort of emerging dynamic but let's play this uh clip about nationalizing oil yes yeah, so we have this clip about and i just wanted to note before that um because we can't play every clip in here but ben does a really great job uh before this clip where charlie sort of has a cherry-picked 
uh, quote is from the the Danish as the president or prime minister, um, you know, basically saying that we're not we're not a socialist country, uh, which Ben was prepared to you know to answer, and I think he answered it very well by basically saying, um, and tell me if I'm uh, misrepresenting your argument, like you know, asking the guy the the leader of like the center right party in Denmark about you know if the country is socialist would be like asking me um, or like other ra- radical communists in the United States about you know how communists or what the what the <laughs> political situation in America is like, you know, it's sort of like an absurd. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 like the idea. Yeah, Lars Rasmussen, I think is his name, who is the uh, uh, Danish prime minister, um, who, yeah, represents center right party. Uh, and, and he has this quote: "Oh, there's nothing socialist about all these social programs." It's like I don't know. Maybe the socialist governments who actually implemented those programs would disagree. But also, I mean, is 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 Lars Rasmussen is is he like the spokesman for the Danish hive mind? You know, like that. Uh, <laughs> That everybody in Denmark, you know, agrees with this. No, I, I thought that was great. But so here's, but here's uh, on Norway and oil and nationalization, and I think this is a really interesting exchange here. You know, if you look at how long socialist parties were in power in Denmark and how many of those programs came about under them, I would not say that these are societies that have achieved socialism. We can certainly talk about what I, what that would mean to me, but I would say that these are societies where socialist parties allied with strong unions have brought about really beneficial social reforms as an effort to move farther in that direction. So l- let's talk about Norway, sure. a country that yeah. I'm familiar with, you're familiar with. Um, very wealthy country. Yeah. Why? Uh, because, uh, you know, I think, the biggest, I think the biggest reason is that they have done something that I'm sure that you wouldn't support, which is nationalize their oil you industry. You mean use fossil fuels, not keep it in the ground like Bernie Sanders would be. Bernie Sanders has tweeted, we need to keep all fossil fuels in the ground, but Norway's built a trillion-dollar sovereign wealth fund. After That's okay, so uh, so so, would you support that nationalization? No, but it's better than keeping it in the ground. Okay, sure. I mean, look, I think ultimately we probably are better off, you know, transitioning to other energy sources. But uh, but if we're going to use oil, I would much rather that that oil be in the hands of the people, that it fund generous social programs like in Norway. And I often do kind of get a sense when conservatives say this. It's like, oh well. There's really nothing socialist about it. They've just nationalized the oil industry and used the proceeds to fund all of these social programs. Well, I mean, if that's not socialist, can we at least have that not socialist let, thing? That sounds nice to me. Let me clarify is that if there is wealth to be redistributed, there must be wealth to be redistributed. Sure. And yeah. Norway has the advantage of having some of the most strategic oil reserves in the country. And I just pinpoint it in particular yeah. because there tends to be this anti-fossil fuel development uh, movement. I mean, it's, it's something Norway and, us, and the United States have in common is that we have a lot of oil. Now, if you want to, again, I know you've said you don't, don't want to do this. No, of but course, if, I, I think the private ownership of minerals is a strategic advantage for the United States. But let me ask you about what I sure. think is one of the reasons why I think the Scandinavian country's pursuit of egalitarianism. Yeah, you're muted, David. So I, I actually have that uh, clip for later because the immigration argument is not new. But that was a – yeah. I, I, <laughs> I mean, uh, Ben, yeah. Should we be nationalizing oil? Yeah. I mean, this is uh, – I mean, the second he, he said, like, Norway wealth, I knew it was going to be, you know, that, like, some kind of gotcha about oil. And it's like – I, again, I mean, it just seems like such a simple point. It's like, okay, yeah. so so we're in agreement. We should nationalize the American oil industry and use it to fund a generous welfare state. That sounds good. 
it's i mean frankly like you see why this group like specializes in making like videos that are one way right because they they sort of think that the left is like this kind of tender group where like you know if you say like you know because we believe in climate change and we want to reduce our like oil consumption that if you note that some countries have used nationalization of like natural resources for the betterment of their society, a principle that we do also that we agree with that. We're just going to like explode in front of them and, you know, fall apart. Oh my God, it was oil. Right. Which is like, whatever. Could you imagine how much better American society would be if instead of all of the rich oil wealth that we have in this country, <laughs> instead of it just gliding the pockets of a few billionaires um, ended up going to benefiting American working people. I mean, they would never do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it would we'd be have transitioned off it by now. We would be. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, we would be living in 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 the frankly probably something close to utopia or, or socialism in that kind of system. I know if no, you exactly. were using I mean, oil we well, there would be garbage. such a huge redistribution of wealth to to have that happen. And again, I mean, whatever the energy resource is, like the point of principle is, I want that to be uh, to be publicly owned. You know, and which. Uh, none of those guys like it, whether it's, you know, like whether it's oil, uh, which, you know, Norway got away with, but I mean, that was what led to the coup in Iran, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's, uh, lithium, uh, you know, it, uh, being, you know, being nationalized, um, you know, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I mean, the, the point is here's this huge, incredibly profitable industry. Who do we think should control it? And who do we think should have the money? And at the end, he just kind of asserts that, yeah, I think he's about to change the subject to immigration, but he just kind of asserts with no explanation that it's a strategic advantage uh, to have like individual rich people own the nation's oil resources. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, and that's, and, and you see what happens in the state of Texas uh, when you have all of these private corporations controlling our oil is mass uh, pollution, a uh, destruction of farmland. Um, not to mention the fact that these guys get together and they start making demands against the government. Um, it's just, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's a weird argument. And again, like nationalization is, is a good thing just for people who might be stumbling on it. It's like, you know, the argument even for nationalization, um, from like a eco-socialist perspective is that that also mm-hmm. gives us the ability to democratically decide how much we're producing and what we're producing yeah. for versus just leaving it to an anarchic, anarchic system uh, like we, we currently have, which just means that, um, you know, Shell Oil is, uh, you know, continuing to ravage the earth while producing podcasts saying that like they understand all the problems, you know, just like fainting and acting like they understand all the problems um, and that they're really finally listening to activists and, and the public. I don't know. I'd much rather have a situation where the government could just, you know, pull the cord if we needed to. Yeah, yeah. If the government is controlling the oil industry, then we can make collective democratic decisions about all those all those things. Now, that said, I do want to give credit where credit's due here. Uh, It is undeniably true that in order for there to be wealth to be redistributed, there has to be wealth to be redistributed. Also, that Norway has some of the largest. Uh, reserves of oil in the country of Norway, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, unlike the United States, um, a very oil poor country. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, like we definitely couldn't afford to use the same. Mechanism. I don't know. Yeah, it's just like there, maybe if we were in in France or something, I could get that. But I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I'm curious. Unless you had something, Matt, I, mm-hmm. I wanted to sort of talk about the international stuff. But yeah, well, I just wanted to note uh, one thing, a couple of things, which is like one, he peddled. Uh, in addition to peddling to the family an awful lot, he also said, 
that won't work because of immigrants quite an awful lot. Yeah. That seems to be mm-hmm. a recurrent theme, but also just generally missing the, like the principle, just like in that clip. And we don't have this clip, but there's another section where he's like, what if you could give workers a tax cut? And it wouldn't affect the budget at all, actually. And he was surprised you would take that, like as if you just want to tax workers because you like the government to have money. As this, you know, like not really, really understanding the principle of where like somebody from the genuine left would care about like which dollars go where. No, exactly. Like I, I don't. Uh, I mean, taxes. I mean, taxes on billionaires might actually serve an independent function because right. you know that reduces their political power and all that stuff but like taxes on workers are not an end in themselves i, I don't want to actually eliminate the fica tax like we say because i know that the effect of that you know i know where the money would be taken out on the other end right let's put it that way yeah, which is social security and medicare yeah exactly but like once I kind of said that, he was like, okay, but hypothetically, let's say that absolutely nothing was going to be cut. I was like, well, okay, that hypothetical, <laughs> sure, you know, like, I, you know, but it's like, I don't know what that's supposed to prove, you know, like, that, mm-hmm. that's a little bit like saying, like, if, if you, you know, hey, if, if you could get a lifetime supply of your favorite whiskey and you're never going to be charged with it and nothing bad was going to happen to you as a result, do you want it? It's like, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's money in workers' pockets that they're frankly like, I mean, per, per, like you said, like I'd rather it co- that money comes from the capitalists than any sort of government. Right, right, and exactly, if yeah. you say like, like there's some sort of weird thing where it can't be used for any new f- programs if you do have that tax. But like, yeah, get all – I would have the very opposite of what Charlie wants, which is a flat tax, which is like the backwards L tax where you start right, right, at the right. highest rate. Just have it – just take all that money, all that money until everyone is nice and even. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 exactly. I mean like you, you – if you can fund all the – all of the uh, – you know, the social services that are actually, you know, going to benefit. I mean, really, actually, we could talk about how Social Security and Medicare are funded. And, and I agree, there are much better ways to do it uh, that, you know, that would be um, that would be more progressive, you know. But like to the extent that you can tax workers, it's only because that's stuff that's going to lead to services the loss of which would hurt them more than the tax does. Well, I mean, it's a similar thing when we were sort of arguing against Andrew Yang's UBI, right? It's like, I'm very happy for people to be getting extra money. Sure. Um, you know, but right. if, if that is also being, you know, used to sort of argue for more cuts uh, to our already meager social safety net, uh, absolutely not. I wanted to sort of, maybe this is, this is just maybe something of, of interest to me because I've been reading a lot of uh, Leo Panish again and sort of getting into like thinking about socialist transformation, um, talking about these Scandinavian countries, because I would like to hear what both of y'all think mm-hmm. about um, this, because Ben, I think you do a, a really great job in this debate. And it's almost always how these debates go is they want to find the country that we think is the good socialist country. And then they want to find a problem in it and sort of, or, or, or something that contradicts the statement that we have. And it's, it's, and I, actually maybe before we get into the point that I wanted to make, um, I'm curious about how you feel about this as somebody, you know, who's studies logic and, and thinks about debate. Um, you know, and I think you show in that that debate a uh, um, a great way of doing it. But I'm just curious how you go into those conversations because there's a part of me that always just wants to be like, oh, whenever they start talking about Norway or, or Denmark or something like that, said so like, yeah, I mean, I like things like you know healthcare and all this kind of stuff, but by no means is this like the end goal social society, mm-hmm. and I don't want to get pigeonholed. But I think you did a good job at sort of finding a way to to balance saying, hey, these 
think some of these things work, but also you're not going to make me own all of, you know, Norwegian society. I don't know. How do you think about like dealing with somebody using an example that you might not want to be using and trying to find a way to flip that on them? Yeah. I mean, I think actually when he started asking me about which countries I'd, I'd point to, which is what happened just before that, you know, he mm-hmm. was like, Oh, what are countries and, you know, in the world, you know, you'd, you'd point to that embody, you know, what you, uh, you know, what like, or I don't know, our socialist, I think is how he put it, but like that, that was the, that was the idea. And, and, and so, you know, it says, well, look, there are no countries in the world where I've got everything mm-hmm. that I want, right. You know, but, uh, but uh, the, you know, the Nordics, you know, have implemented a lot of short-term reforms that I do want. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but I did front load before I think we even threw back to him, look, these are complicated societies. Right-wing parties sometimes win elections, and they, mm-hmm. they, they do things that I don't like. Uh, the, the, the point is not that everything that exists in any Nordic country is good, and, you know, and everything that does, you know, like is bad. The point is the reason to talk about the Nordics is that these are thriving economies, which shows that you don't. It's not going to lead to like economic catastrophe to mm-hmm. do this program. Uh, where a lot of the things that we want have been successfully beta tested, you know, they, they, you know, a lot of these sort of expansive social democratic uh, policies that take certain parts of the economy outside of the market uh, and and uh, and provide for certain human needs that certainly aren't provided for in the United States. But actually, I thought in some ways that the funniest thing about that is that in the very beginning of the debate, like in the opening state, that mm-hmm. I said. We could talk about what I would consider, you know, to, you know, my idea of utopia and contrast to yours, but be, but, you know, we could do that later if you want, but let's talk about the baby steps in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And then like when he was queuing me up for the Norway thing, so he could do all of his gotchas about, you know, about, you know, things in Norway that I would like, or that he didn't think I'd like, uh, you know, I, I said, we saw in that clip, look, these are clearly not fully socialist societies. That's not the reason that I'm bringing them up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then later on, you know, I, I think it might've been in the second half. He said, well, I feel like you're cloaking your radicalism by, by talking about, you know, basically these incredibly popular policies like minimum wage and healthcare. I was like, I am. I mean, it kind of seems like I'm, I'm. I'm the one who keeps bringing it up that I actually do have more radical long-term goals than just being like Norway. Mm-hmm. No, I think exactly. And like, I don't know, it's just like, I mean, we've done this debate on this show, we played a debate between uh, Yarn Brook and, and Leo Panich on like socialism, right? And there's just kind of fixation, like, well, this is a socialist policy, and this is not a socialist policy, right? Which is, I just think is something that like, while we have to go out and like fight people on their own terms and in terms that they understand and not make things seem so complicated that we're avoiding uh, questions. We also need to be careful. I, I think not to fall into the trap of thinking that like certain policies are, are, are necessarily social. Like, like, let me give you an example of this. Cause this is something that I thought um, was an interesting point. I can't remember if it was in regards to Norway or Finland, or I can't remember what exactly a Nordic country is talking about. But he was talking about, um, I, I believe it was Norway, that doesn't have a minimum wage, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, sort of like, that's like, you know, such a bad thing. But people need to remember that, like, in, we advocate for a minimum wage in the United States because class power is so uh, lopsided against working people that we actually have to set just like a minimally allowed legal standard for what you can pay a worker. Right. It's not something like you don't need a minimum wage in a situation where you're able to sort of break 
uh, the power of capital. And certainly if you were living in a social society where you've completely broken the power of capital, you wouldn't need one at all. Right. Um, But a minimum wage is like something that if you're looking at the board, if you're looking at class power in society and saying, okay, we might not be able to get all the things that we want, but hey, we could prevent them from paying people, you know, starvation wages. You put that in place. Right. And in the United States, again, we're advocating for an increase of the minimum wage because we are in that kind of weakened position. But it's not that necessarily like in and of itself, like the minimum wage is like the the true heart beating heart of socialism. It's a legal power that we can find, you know, I don't know, to sort of like cement some some victories for ourselves to make sure that things can't be pulled back. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's just like these are like some of the bigger things that I'm thinking that like we need to start being prepared to wrestle with when we're engaging with the public and when we're engaging with right wingers, be prepared to like push back against their nonsense, but also not making the mistake ourselves that when Kirk says, for example, a country doesn't have the minimum wage, we're like, oh no, you know, that means that it's like a bad country, right? It it actually means that things are, are stronger there. Um, for working people than they are in the United States. Yeah, which, which, yeah, this actually did come up uh, in the debate that uh, that he he said, uh, well, you know, you know, Ned Denmark doesn't have a minimum wage. You know, Denmark, yeah. this is the first time I've ever heard that, right? Uh, you know, like that's that's not a point right wingers love to to bring mm-hmm. up. And it's like, yeah, but you have to say the other half that it's not that. It's not that they don't have a minimum wage, so uh, the market, you know, it's just like whatever, you know, whatever the market can bear, you know, like whatever, you know, like individual workers are desperate enough to work for is what you can pay them. It's that they have incredibly strong labor unions that negotiate agreements for entire sectors of the economy and, that you know, the wage floor is enforced that way. Mm-hmm. No, I, exactly. I think that that's – and I think you did a great job in, in the debate on that. I mean – well, should we go to the immigration clip or should we go straight ahead to the Bezos? What do you think, Matt? Uh, it's up to you. I mean, I, I'm eager for the Bezos clip, but uh, if you want to yeah. immigration, I mean, yeah, he, he uh, yeah, we can do immigration if you guys. Yeah, want well, to. yeah, let's let's do let's do immigration just because just because uh, they think, bring it up a lot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I, th- I think, given Charlie Kirk's particular flavor, like the particular flavor of reactionary that he is, the immigration thing is important. Yeah. Here we go. It's from under mute, y'all. Oh, yeah, gotcha. Now, this has changed in recent years because of a lot of the Syrian refugee crisis and more kind of left-wing governments taking over Sweden in particular. But Norway, for example, takes in about 70 immigrants a day, even with their more relaxed policies. America, much bigger country, albeit, 2,740 legal immigrants, about 5,000 if, inc- if you include the people going across the southern border. Do you... As being a Democrat socialist, do you support closed borders and strict immigration? No, I don't. And I'll tell you why. So uh, two reasons. One is that I think that, you know, all of the economic data that I've seen says that having more immigrants actually increases the amount of wealth that society has uh, has to go around. And the second is I would ask what the alternatives are, right? So you know, we can do, you know, like those, those families that, you know, that you talk about, right. You know, we can, uh, you know, we can do things like separating, you know, separating families. We can do things like raiding, you know, churches, you know, to, uh, to, to drag out, uh, immigrants. But I think we'd really, really, really have to step up that like by like a factor of a hundred to actually get rid of all the undocumented immigrants in the country. Whereas I think a much better solution if what you're worried about is, hey, here are people coming in who, 
yeah, they, they definitely you know, contribute to economic growth. But here are people coming in who are willing to work for low wages, whatever. I think yes. a much better solution to that problem is for those people to have a pathway to citizenship so that they're not afraid to do things like join unions or they're not afraid to do things like, you know, take uh, take their employers to court when they violate labor laws. I think that's a much better solution to that problem than the sort of heavy handed, you know, police you know, police state kinds of tactics, which I think would be the only way that you're actually going to resolve the status quo in the other direction. And then he goes on to pull a Bernie quote completely out of context. Um, but again, I think that this this was a good a good you know response here, Ben, because you're hitting at the unfreedom aspect of these kind of policies, right? Is that, you know, this is actually used to restrict people's, people's freedom. And if this is your holy, holy, your most holy principle of government, um, you know, you're not doing a great job of upholding it as long as you allow people to sort of create these little five thumbs um, and ignore even basic American labor law that we've decided that we want to have in our country. Oh, sorry, Ben, you are muted. I got there you. We go. uh, yeah. Look, Charlie, like he loves this point uh, for the same reason that Tucker Carlson loves it, you know, for the same reason that, you know, whoever, Josh Howley, all of them Mm -hmm. do, because it lets them posture as if they actually give a shit about native born American workers, which obviously is not the case. Uh, You know, like, and, and the context shift is just amazing. Oh no! Oh Lord, we lost Ben. Uh, we'll see if we can get him back on. Here he is. Yeah, you're oh. back, Ben. Okay. Uh, in every other context where um, we're contemplated state action to help working class people, all of these guys, despite their alleged populism, are going to say, "No, no, no, we can't do that." Raising the minimum yeah, wage—that's yeah. too interventionist. That's too, you know, administrative state. You know, we 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 can't give everybody <laughs> health care. The same problem, you know. We, we, we want a state that's, like, way too small for that, but, like, exactly large enough to literally, like, tear young children away from the arms of their mothers and, you know, put them in concentration camps, right? Just that size, right? And, right. and, and it's, just, it's just amazing because in context like the immigration thing where they're trying to pit one group of workers against another group of workers – you know, they they care. They say they care about one of those two groups, uh, but in all these other contexts, they don't. When like actually, even from the perspective of what are you going to do for American workers? I mean, either we're going to like escalate uh, the um, you know, let's be honest about this, Obama, Trump, mm-hmm. you know, now Biden, you know, war against immigrants. We're either we're going to escalate it to like crystal knocked levels or you have to have some way for, um, you know, for, for those workers to be comfortable taking the kind of avenues to, uh, to, to protect their livelihoods, to be able to negotiate for higher wages than Americans would. What do you guys make just generally to the right wing response to this as like, we do have a labor shortage in this country and they're still completely like freaking out about the idea that people might come here and take our jobs. I mean, I think that the, the, the rhetorical point there is, is very simple. I mean, they're all over the place and th- there's not a lot of truth in their position. I would think, um, you know, argue though, like as Bernie Sanders has been very principled and correct on that, you know, 
uh, we need to be fighting against this carceral state and like the brutality of, of our border and, and abolishing ice and all of those things. Um, but like an unrestricted move of like and flow of like labor into the United States is a tactic to you that like capitalists mm-hmm. do promote. As Bernie Sanders said very notably, like that's a Koch brothers proposal, open borders, right? Um, you know, these are things that like we have to be able to, I don't know, it's just like um, understand like why there's a certain kind of immigration that like these massive corporations try um, mm. to promote in the United States. And remember, this is not an, an, an argument against immigration. It's against the kind of immigration, as Ben was noting earlier, that is trying to bring in people who are afraid for their ability to stay in the society. Exactly. They're afraid that they're going to face abuse. Right. Um, and like just under. Yeah, I don't know, like not falling for the, the bait of just because the right wing um, is sort of like at, you know, like kicking their heels about people coming into this country while all of their donors yeah. are benefiting. Yeah, I, I would actually I actually think there is kind of a larger point here that goes beyond the immigration issue, which mm-hmm. is that oftentimes because we live in this ridiculous neoliberal hellscape where the working class has almost no political power at all, mm-hmm. uh, the kinds of things that people are arguing about in mainstream politics are often arguments that where like both sides are pretty bad, you know, for mm-hmm. workers that, you know, that, uh, that like, maybe we're talking about a status quo that's awful versus a way of making it like 5% worse. But I think that we make a real mistake as leftists if our intervention in those debates is to, is to focus too much on, well, what you, what you want is 5% worse. So it sounds like we're fine with the status quo. Mm -hmm. And I think this comes up all the time. I mean, look at the, uh, the issue, like the stuff that's been going on in like Los Angeles, you know, all the, uh, the raids on uh, homeless encampments, uh, I, I think that it's really important, actually, as leftists to say, look, obviously, the worst thing that can happen is this kind of police state authoritarian crackdown and these mm-hmm. desperate people sleeping in the park. But we also need to be really clear that a close second worst thing that could happen is just allow, you know, just allowing the continuation of the status quo where desperate people are sleeping in the park, where they're Mm -hmm. extremely vulnerable to social predation of all kinds and, and unscrupulous drug dealers and, and, and much worse, right. You know, violence, you know, and, and that like saying, Oh, everything's fine. As long as, uh, as long as the encampments are still there, which is essentially the position of a lot of liberals, Mm -hmm. um, like that, like that itself is really callous uh, toward, towards those people. And like, what we need is a society is is to provide these people with like real, dignified, normal, permanent housing, uh, not like they oh, you know, you have a you know a shelter where you know you have to leave it between this hour and that hour. Or you can't bring your pets and you know you can only bring two mm-hmm. bags of your possessions which yeah no wonder a lot of people end up sleeping in the park rather than doing that but like just say looking at that situation and saying oh this is fine is really a gift to the right wingers who uh who want the crackdowns no i just wanted to note on this that like um this is something that like people like tyler count right who is a you know hardcore libertarian um, professor at what is it? Uh, what, George, George Mason. Mason. Um, you know, he writes in in his book that like what the United States needs to be doing is allowing for there to be um, you know shanty towns essentially in the middle of the cities, um, and and for us to get rid of any kind of regulations on the on those kind of spaces. Um, you know, in 
which is, I think, an extremely dystopian um, view. Now, yeah, obviously, no, no, yeah, no. Of, of course, and, and most ordinary people are, you know, like who are, you know, maybe workers, but, you know, but, but they're not at that level of desperation, you know, like so many people will hear that and, and, and be like, wait a second. So you want to just continue this forever that like, I can't take my yes. kids to the park because there's somebody sleeping there. Maybe there's this, you know, maybe there's, you know, there's crime and drugs there, which really does happen. Right. I mean, that's not like something that they made up, you know, they have like, you want that? No, maybe I actually do sympathize with the police state authoritarianism. It's the same thing on the, on the immigration issue. If you're just defending the, uh, you know, well, these various ways of cracking down on undocumented immigrants make things worse, which is certainly true. Uh, mm-hmm. Then, you know, it's very easy for the Charlie Kirks and Josh Howleys and Tucker Carlson's of the world to say, Oh, see, you're actually on the side of the corporations that you want these right. people to continue to exist in this gray zone where everybody knows they're there, but it's not exactly legal. And in that, you know, that zone where they could be hyper exploited uh, and that could be used to undermine other workers wages. No, it's really, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just want to note very, like, to be very clear on, like, especially on the homeless issue, right? The solution is to be fighting for public housing exactly, um, yeah. on, on a mass scale, while at the same time opposing efforts by the right wing to increase, like, policing and terror against homeless communities, right? This is literally, like, you know, just trying to be a little bit more dialectical, though, um, and not, like, making the mistake. Because the fact is, is that liberals and neoliberals uh, especially will love to sit on their hands, on these kind of public demands that we do something um, different or, you know, so like, yeah, it's like, so when you see like people saying like, okay, well, we don't want the, the police to, you know, harass folks, you know, the cities will be like, okay, we'll get rid of it, but we're not going to like fund public housing or something like that. And our job as socialists is to make that second demand that like, Hey, the status quo is not acceptable either way that you're going to take it. Right. To just like, you know, to increase policing against folks um, or to just basically do nothing for people who are, you know, without homes and similar kind of questions with immigration. Yeah, I think, yeah, these are these are these are like where we have a really specific role in the public. that I think it's really important when these kind of big flashpoint debates are happening uh, where we have a very different vision that's sort of addressing all of these 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 problems on a on a macro level instead of sort of just getting bogged down and like okay what gradient of like terror do we want to like you know put upon people yeah and it's also i like i think your point was also important the right one about like how this actually serves bosses now the current system which is that when you can have a class of people um, that are illegal then and you also have a state agency of uh, sort of like cops that you can call in case those people start acting up like imagine mm-hmm. look at all the labor activity we have going on right now imagine how many places are skirting by because if things got a line they could just call ice on their labor force i've worked at places where that threat has been made to people yeah i'm just like i've worked at restaurants where that has been very clearly um, you know, hinted at, at for people that like, you know, I, I think I have some suspicions about your immigration status. Oh, you're complaining about not coming in this Saturday. Uh, you know, you don't want to come in this Saturday, et cetera, et cetera. It'd be a shame if I picked up the phone, you know? Yeah. I mean, sorry. none of those bosses, none of those bosses are getting locked up. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think that, that that hits it really well. I mean, I want to get to this Bezos thing a little bit yeah, and then we yeah. can zoom out in the, in the last couple of minutes because we did promise that we we're going to grill you on platforming Charlie Kirk. So we have to make sure that yeah, we're not, please. Um, you know, being cowards on that level. But uh, let me pull this last bit because this was interesting. I mean, he opens up the debate by noting how much you guys agree on, uh, you know, your hatred of Jeff Bezos. Uh, what was it? Hunter Biden. I can't remember the other one. 
Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, 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 I, I, I think the things that we're supposed to agree on were uh, Jeff Bezos is bad, although my actual point was that Jeff Bezos' existence is a symptom of a despicable <laughs> economic system. Uh, that's why I'm not up Jeff Bezos to begin that Hunter Biden is bad and uh, would that like hospitals should be required to uh, to like publicly list their prices, which I said, yeah, sure, that's good, but also they shouldn't have prices. Yeah. <laughs> So this is it, and this is sort of towards the end of the debate. This isn't the post game, but the bonus bit of the debate, which I noticed that Ben was starting to get a little. You're starting to get ready to get to some of these points that had seemed to be every time, um, you know, you were close to really hitting him on like healthcare and like these kind of like really big points. He was always moving it somewhere else. So this is when I felt like you were really trying to pin him down on some of these big claims he was making. Okay, so here's what I wanted to ask. Real, real quick, sure. I promise. So uh, we established earlier. How much we both like Jeff Bezos? Yes, just like best Jeff. Are you going to ask me should I raise his taxes? Well, because this is why I'm curious about it. Because I because I, be. I, I saw in 2019. Yes, with Flip, Kyle Kalinske. Yeah, and he asked you, would you be willing to raise Jeff Bezos's taxes by like one percent to provide housing for every single homeless veteran? And your response at that time was that you'd hope he'd do it voluntarily. And I think at this point we've established that's not going to happen. He'd prefer to buy a spaceship. So that's probably true. Um, yeah. So if you put a gun to my head, would I? Would I raise his taxes? I mean, I guess if I was a representative, I guess, yes. For okay, other, that's good. For this other is, reasons. This but, is progress. But, but I'm let, so proud of you, Let Charlie. me tell you, I said, I guess conditionally, if all of a sudden there would be a comparable piece of legislation alongside of it that would actually value and prioritize things I cared about, if it was just to raise his taxes, to go into the curb, current albatross okay, but, 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 of the but, administrative but if, state, I'd rather have him buy spaceships than give money to Fauci. But, but, if, but if it was earmarked, for a housing for homeless veterans, and you would say yes. The now. answer is yes because I think Jeff Bezos is, from from a this moral is such standpoint. Good progress. But let me tell you why. Let me clarify why. Sure. Jeff Bezos games your favorite department, the Postal Service. He games the corporate tax loophole system. Yeah. Jeff Bezos has a total disregard for what I consider to be the American way of life, and he has this weird fascination of going into orbit. And guess what? I hope he stays there. Okay. Well, I congratulate you on this progress. <laughs> well, I mean, you could call it progress. You could also call it a commitment to prudence. Okay. No, is, no, but it's, it's that Greek it's a, word it's prudentia, which is looking at things as they are, and it's a non. Next level. Next level. <laughs> yeah, it spends like a minute like arguing with himself about whether there's like some hypothetical or maybe he'd be willing to agree to raise Jeff Bezos's taxes by 1% to house every homeless veteran only for veterans veterans housing but like isn't that an interventionist state like i I, I, yeah. I'm just concerned about the natural law implications of all this. No, I mean, the, the thing is, is like if you start giving veterans free health care and free housing, I mean, they're not really going to be as interested um, in being cogs in the machine of capitalism, Kirk. So I don't know if this is a good solution to your. Uh... Yeah, <laughs> no, no, they no, said I, I should quickly say, turn to the yeah. hammocks. I just want to say real quickly, like <laughs> all those free houses should have hammocks in it. But anyway, go on. Yes. Continue, no, absolutely. <laughs> the, the veterans should also be given hammocks. But uh <laughs> But yeah, you know, they've earned it. No, I, I think um, this is actually not the uh, the most astonishing concession that he made in mm -hmm. the debate. Uh, the really bizarre one, and it, and it went by in like two seconds, like you could blink and miss it, is in the like post-game kind of half, we were arguing about 
like hard work and whether people should be rewarded for hard work mm-hmm. and whether you should have to work for the things that you get. And I said, well, okay. I mean, if your if your principle is that nobody should should get anything they didn't work for, then here are two things you should hate: stock ownership and inheritance. Mm-hmm. And and he actually said, well, maybe you could convince me on stock ownership. And uh, I, like he then like started to argue with me about inheritance, but it's like wait 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 wait. <laughs> Wait, 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 like, really? Like, you're willing to give up on stock ownership? That's a big one, man. I mean, that's <laughs> the end inheritance? of system. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's essentially how, that's like all of the innovations in American capitalism at this point are financial innovations, um, is finding ways to sort of stick yourself into already existing, like, economic activity. So breaking down that dynamic, I mean, Charlie Kirk is sort of coming for the engine of the beast, right? He's, like, he's coming to sort of end that whole system. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, because I wanted to sort of ask briefly at the end a, a bit about um, about the philosophy, because the next section, I don't have it clipped up, but there's a whole thing on Euphifro, um, which I found to be very, very interesting. Um, but before that, I want to ask you, Ben, hmm. um, I, I was texting you this the other day. It's like, when did this like Hegel thing start? Um, <laughs> because I mean, what he called, we, you mentioned earlier, but he, in the middle of the debate, he calls Woodrow Wilson a Hegelian. Yes, yes, he does. Uh, and, and there's actually a really weird point pretty early in the debate where I don't even remember what it was that, that I said that he responded this way to. It certainly had nothing to do with Hegel. And he said, oh, well, I guess we're all Hegelians now. I was like, what? <laughs> Can I ask you just for the record, Ben, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but are you a Hegelian? Uh, no, I'm not. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the thing is, like, it's so, it's like, uh, look, I mean, the answer is very simple. It's like, they, they think that it makes it seem like they know, like, the dark the dark secret and, like, the engine of, of like, Marxism, right? Well, this the is same actually, thing as when they say yeah. DOS capital, right? Yeah. Genetic uh-huh. fallacy a little bit, too, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, I, I actually think, uh, so first of all, my answer to the, when did they get all get obsessed with Hegel is that I blame James Lindsay. Yeah, I think, I think, that, so I think that he did this, but. Uh, right. But which, by yeah. the way, sorry for like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the most like on brand James Lindsay thing, because if anyone spends any time in a philosophy department and I know there's some people who listen to this who are really into Hegel, but like very classic things like the most annoying guy in the room is like obsessed with Hegel. Right. Yeah. And like James <laughs> Lindsay being like the most annoying, like kind of right wing propagandist being a, <laughs> obsessed with Hegel is very on brand. Too. But the weird thing is like and what's kind of touching about this is, look, Charlie became a conservative propagandist instead of going to college. So mm-hmm. he's a little bit autodidact about this stuff. And like I kind of, that, that was the part that was kind of touching to me, like he wanted to sh- talk to you about this stuff because I don't think he gets a lot of chance to do it. But when you talk about Marx, like I remember when I was taught Marx in uh, undergrad, uh, it was the German ideology, but and we got that like sort of Hegelian young because the, the class was Hegel, Marx, and Nietzsche, and so we wow. got like the Hegel like young Hegelian sort of like thing. But the whole point was like he's not a Hegelian; he's splitting with Hegel and Hegel in a very uh, severe yeah. Sense. Well, well, that was the funny thing about that that part of the debate because uh, he had. Like he asked me, like kind of the beginning of the post game, what do you think about Marx? And and one of the things that I said, you know, it's like, look, I'm not going to dogmatically say that Marx got every single thing right, or there's nothing mm-hmm. that you could revise 150 years later, or, you know, whatever. But like, you know, overall, yeah, you know, I think I think his, his theory of history is mostly right. And he jumped on that and he said, and I quote, 
I, I'm happy to argue about Hegelian dialectics and the phenomenology of spirit, which I want to just say, like, I, I kind of think, well, I'd be fascinated to see what that would look like. But, um, but like, but then, you know, and he was like, oh, but that's basically it, right? That's basically Marx's theory of history is, is, is Hegel. And I said, like, what I think is, is the least, um, like, maybe the least interesting thing you could possibly say about this, which is, no. Uh, and he, he starts saying, oh, but, you know, Marx was, like, he said the head of the young Hegelians. I'm not quite sure what he means by that, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, but it's like, and I was like, yeah, he started out as a young Hegelian, but then he criticizes Hegel's theory of history in favor of what is structurally, you know, you know, the uh, similar, but is uh, in substance exactly the opposite, which is a materialist theory of history. Yeah. And, and, and it was, it was just so weird. Cause like, I would think that that, I would think that that would be on the Wikipedia page for Marx. That's page one. Well, for sure, man. I mean, like, like there's like even famous lines about like Louis Althusser, like one of like the last great, like, you know, real hardcore Marxists, like, you know, the sit within Marxism and don't move from, from out of it, like says about Marx and Hegel's like Marx takes Hegel and like puts it back on its feet. Yeah. Right. right. Like, like Hegel is just completely <laughs> upside down about everything. I don't know. I mean, not to get, I know for some, we might lose some people with, with too much of, of this stuff, but like, it is really fascinating if you've spent any, really any time, um, dealing with like, frankly, not even Marxism, but like the history of ideas, right? And philosophy yeah, exactly. to sit here and, and not get that. Like, I don't know that, Yes. Well, Marx sort of like, as were a lot of young German idealists, right? Remember also like Marx goes from this movement um, from like German idealism into what we call like materialism, right? Radically yeah. different philosophies. No, exactly. Uh, and, and as, and, and as Matt says about the German ideology, I mean, quite a bit of Marx's early work is, is written in opposition to Hegelianism because of course that's what he's, that's what he's breaking from. That's what he's reacting to. And none of this means like, you know, if you're a Marxist, you shouldn't like read Hegel or find Hegel interested. It's mm-hmm. it's just that like, uh, it's just as a matter of fact, right? I mean, that the end of the day views of these two guys about what the, the motor force of history is could not be more different, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean it's it's next level stuff. Well, I, we got a couple minutes if that's all right, Ben. I just yeah. wanted to ask you as as like a sort of closing segment. Yeah. Um, you do these debates. Um, yeah. You engage with with right wingers from time to time. You've even written pieces in you know magazines. I mean, this was a while ago, but like Quillette, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when a lot of people were you know treating that. I mean, I feel like they've had a little bit of a fall from grace, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. maybe I just haven't been paying attention. Um, you know, you engage with the with our our opponents. Some people think that that's um, um, good, right, and, and noble. Um, there are a lot of folks out there who think that. I mean. You know that this is. I, I didn't see anyone. How could you typically ben? about Kirk, but like platforming or drawing attention oh, to know, somebody I, I like get, Carly? Kirk. I did get a little bit of it o- over Kirk. There's there's the editor of I think something called Specter Journal who who like oh. went after. I know that journal actually. Yeah, who who went after me about like platforming Charlie Kirk? Um, okay, well I'm sorry. I think that it, you can't platform somebody on their own show. But well, no, you, I mean you, not, treat- not, to, not to even mention like okay. Charlie Kirk is somebody, I mean, I guarantee you that if you just walk out into the street and ask people 
who's Charlie Kirk, it's not going to take you that long to find somebody who knows who he is. If mm-hmm. you go out into the street and ask them who's Ben Burgess, right, it'll, it'll take a lot longer. I mean, unless maybe certain parts of Brooklyn or Silver Lake will be a little shorter, but like, you know, other than that, right, you know, it's going to be a much right. longer process. Charlie Kirk spoke at the last Republican National Convention. Yeah. I don't think he's waiting for me to give him his big break. Okay. So, I mean, I think that that's a very fair point, um, you know, specific, uh, you know, just on like fame, but like on the point of engaging with right wingers, treating it as if these debates that we're having, I mean, like, you know, he didn't say anything altogether horrific, but the implication, for example, about immigration, the implication there about all this stuff is like, you know, sort of entry level, like white supremacist stuff, right? The idea is that like by engaging with them, you treat these like ideas as if they're legitimate political perspectives rather than things that should be cast aside. I know we talk about this all the time, you know, behind the scenes. Could you just, you know, for, for yeah, folks sure. who are on the fence about this, why is it worthwhile engaging with people who hold abhorrent right-wing views in, in public ways like this? Yeah. So so let me just say one thing real specifically yeah. about Charlie Kirk and then more generally about the the reason why I think that it's a good thing for leftists to go into, re, you know, into uh, centrist or right-wing spaces in order to argue against their ideas. Uh, so on Charlie Kirk... You know, I basically wanted to do two things here. Uh, the least, the, the objectively much less important one, but it, it means something to me, is because I remember that segment that you guys did. I wasn't on it, you know, but like that segment you guys did on TMBS uh, a long time ago, uh, where the two of you and Michael are, are, are making fun of Charlie Kirk for like talking about Hegel, uh, talking about Plato. Plato, and, uh, yeah. And, and, and so, you know, I, I kind of wanted to you know, to, to stick a couple pins in that balloon. But, um, and, and I think that the Plato part of this is interesting, right? Let's just say Mm -hmm. that. But, uh, the, but the much more important thing is I wanted to talk to anybody in Charlie Kirk's audience who takes this populist brand in seriously and to try to explain why it's just total nonsense. The guy is a complete servant of the 1%, uh, politically, like he might say he hates Jeff Bezos, but he certainly doesn't hate, uh, you know, a system uh, that uh, that that allows for somebody to, um, you know, to, you know, work like literally like work people to the point where they have this crazy high injury rate and then like use the money that he makes from them to buy himself a spaceship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he was ambivalent about whether he even raises taxes. Uh, mm-hmm. So so I wanted to kind of expose that to anybody who's in his audience uh, who. Uh, who thinks who takes that seriously and um, and by the way I will say looking at the um, at the the comments on on Charlie's channel uh, there's you know a lot of people uh, I mean a lot of people have a lot to say you know about my you know about my appearance and you know this and that the other thing but like not a lot of oh remember when Charlie really got him on X, right? Like, if anything, like, by far the most common negative comment was that I didn't let him talk enough on his own show. <laughs> I mean, for, frankly, I mean, I won't, you know, make you embarrass yourself by complimenting yourself too much, but if you go, people should go read the comments. I mean, they are very interesting to see um, a lot of people saying, like, well, I disagreed with him on all of these things, but, like, on this point, like, oh, he made a good point about this, this, and that. And, like, that is worthwhile. Um, and, and I'm sorry, there's a reason why they're, the right wing is investing money into doing these kind of outlets. Shows. Candace yeah, no. Owens is doing the same thing. 
Yeah, well, uh, Candace, my my DMs are open. Uh, the, uh, although, although, really, uh, really, I want Jason Miles to take that one. But, uh, but in any case, uh, the, uh, um, in um, in the in this particular so in this particular case, those are the goals. But the the broader point is is this: I think oftentimes people who raise these platforming worries or whatever even aside from the fact that the arithmetic is not what it would have to be for it to make any sense mm. that, you know, he's, in, he, I'm going on his platform, which is vastly larger than any of our platforms. But um, uh, I would love to live in a world where the arithmetic worked out such that this was like something we really had to agonize about, you know, whether we were going to legitimize these people by, yeah. uh, you know, by talking to them. <laughs> yeah. But like, but really like the idea that, it's they're getting some kind of legitimacy from us, right? That like people mm-hmm. are going to say, "Ooh, well, I don't know." I mean, that's uh, um, you know that that Marxist podcaster, you know, like like talk to him. Atheist, so he must be, yeah, yes, Marxist atheist professor is how he labeled the video. Trifecta: all, the three worst things you can be. <laughs> yeah, all of the elements of that are correct, but it's it somehow it feels a little bit like it might as well be Charlie Kirk versus rootless cosmopolitan Ben Burgess, but. Uh, <laughs> In any case, like the you know, I don't think the legitimizing worry makes sense. In fact, I think there's there's a little bit of a contradiction because oftentimes the same people who raise the legitimizing worry will also say, well, there's no point to debates because nobody's mm-hmm. ever convinced. So it's like, okay, so nobody's ever moved by anything they hear in debate, but also our audience will like them better because we debated. You know, which is it, right? I mean, like they're going to convince all of the leftists who watch like GTA or Left Reckoning. Like, first of all. Arrogant. I mean, maybe I'm just arrogant here, but no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't no. think Charlie Kirk's or any of these people are going to get a lot of converts out of that. But like, also, if nobody's influenced by anything they hear in debate, what are you worried about? Now, since I think that people can be influenced by it, and and I, I mean, like, clearly they can be. Anybody who does this regularly will get those testimonials. Right. Uh, we can argue about how often, uh, mm-hmm. but and and don't get me wrong. Right. If your political strategy solely consists of doing debates, that'd be a terrible political strategy. Yeah. And, and, we, and we can even say there are other things that should be much bigger components of that strategy. And I don't disagree. You know, like, like I, I, the, the joke I made on my show was like, look, if I fell off one end of a lifeboat and a really good union organizer fell off the other end, uh, I wouldn't blame you. Right. For swimming out to save the union organizer. Cause like, you know, as a matter of priorities, sure. But if some of us are going to do things, like do media, then it seems to me that one of the best things we can do is do stuff like this because we live in a world where me- like traditional media has just been shattered yep. and everybody can curate their own media diet as they want. So this, the effect of that is that whether we're talking, I mean, I don't know the cool that would, you know, would, would print something that I set them now, but like, you know, whether we're talking about those four A's back in 2019, mm-hmm. we're sure I'm, I'm going to the bad people magazine, but I'm going to the bad people magazine to argue that they're wrong. Yeah. Uh, or, or this with, with Kirk, either way, doing stuff like that is your only chance to talk to somebody else's audience. If you don't talk to them there, they're not going to find you at Jacobin. I've, I'm sorry. I've seen it all around me. There is especially like, I think that there is a kind of, 
I don't know. I don't want to fix it on this too much, but there's a kind of mentality that some folks have about how many people are moved by this kind of new media content. I don't want to sit here and pal of ourselves on the back too much, but I have seen the opposite happen. You know, I, you know, I, I come from poor working class America and a lot of my friends did not go to school. And there is a deep desire that people have to be educated and people use these platforms to educate themselves mm-hmm. on things. That's why people are interested when we do conversations about philosophers, et cetera, right? Because people want to learn about this. And you know who's waiting there more often than not to instruct them? It's not the left. It's right. these powerful right-wing uh, machine. So finding ways, even if it's after the fact, even if people have sort of been scooped up by those, you know, machines that they've created out there, finding off ramps for them, I think can be extremely, extremely uh, beneficial. Um, as somebody who was like a little, you know, annoying ass right winger when I was a teenager um, who became a, a, a Marxist, um, I think that that is something and it's a fight that's worth happen- happening and like you can yeah. really bring people and you can move them quickly too. I mean, speaking of atheism, I remember being like a nine or 10 year old Catholic in North Dakota. Nobody in my circle ever really was an atheist but i saw an atheist get interviewed about some sort of like 10 commandments on the uh city uh a courthouse sort of like deal and at first it angered me but it stuck with me and like by the time i was 13 i that it had got in my head and got me out of religion and like that wasn't that i usually think like changes of mind are social but at least in my case that was purely a media thing no um, like i, I, yeah, I go which, ahead which, 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 which happens all the time i mean people uh and i think part of the i think there are just real quick, like two reasons why people end up having the idea that this stuff never works uh, in that way. Uh, one is that they're making this jump from are Charlie Kirk's most hardcore fans going to like be influenced mm-hmm. by anything you say? Well, of course not. Right? That's not the question. Right. Uh, they, or they'll even be like, oh, but you know, you're not going to – why argue with somebody who's arguing in bad faith? Because the point is not that you're trying to convince him, right? The, yeah. uh, the point is you're trying to convince anybody who's convincible in the audience, which means people who might be a little bit sympathetic, but uh, you know, they're certainly giving him a hearing. They're not necessarily married to it yet. Or people who maybe even used to be hardcore fans, but for whatever reason, for a thousand reasons, they might be – right now, you catch them at a point in their life life where they're open to yeah. uh, something different. And what Matt is describing, I think, is goes to the other thing, which is that people will say, well, look, uh, nobody is, con- you know, nobody is convinced because what they really mean by convinced is that like right there in the room, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, shit, you're right. They, uh, you know, uh, got you me. know, got me right. I'm a socialist now or, you know, I'm <laughs> whatever now. Right. Like, and of course, that's not how persuasion works. The way persuasion mm-hmm. works is the way that Matt just said that like oftentimes your initial reaction might be irritation, but then like it kind of starts working on you and you know, you're like, maybe, oh, hold on. Right. And then like, you know, later, like it could be like, you know, by the time there's a little bit less ego invested in it, right. Like start, you know, gradually you start to th- think about more when people are persuaded. And of course, it's not that most people are going to be persuaded, but if we're in the persuasion business, which I don't know why we're doing media if we're never, if we're not trying to persuade people of things, right? That's how realistically it's going to work. Yeah. And I would say the same thing of the Anna Kasperi and Ben Shapiro debate, which I thought like the calculus that like you can platform Ben Shapiro, a guy who is the top of Facebook all the time and literally invited by a chamber of commerce. Like more people are going to watch that debate online than we're in that arena. And like, it's good to have somebody there giving good counter examples. I, you know, yeah, 
I was just going to say the thing I particularly loved, you know, just parenthetically about Anna's debate with uh, Ben Shapiro is, and, and this made me um, look, very proud about whatever small role that I might've played in this evolution and the much larger one that, you know, that Michael certainly played and Jack but whatever, but like that one of the first things she said is, you know, we should be focusing on redistribution of resources, not manufacturing culture war nonsense. And, that actually put Ben Shapiro in the position where he had to say it. He did say this in the debate. Well, I, you know, I take exception to say it. it's all manufactured nonsense. So it's like, make mm-hmm. him be the guy who says, this is great. We should absolutely be doing never ending 24 seven culture war. That's going to be a real winner, you know, with most people. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think that that's, that's phenomenal. Well, for people who are unfamiliar, I'm sure most people are familiar with the great Ben Burgess. Check out his show. Give them an argument. Um, and his upcoming book, could you give people a quick tease about the the Hitchens book? We're going to have you on for sure uh, once oh, that yeah. comes out. Yeah, so it's called Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Uh, and Hitchens, this is actually um, something that I started thinking about because on on TMBS uh, in the last uh, the last phase, uh, we were doing all of these throwback clips, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a well that we kept going back to was was the, was the Hitchens clips, uh, and um, and and I'll you know I, I also um, you know I mean whatever I, I like uh, if you've if you've been out drinking with me like you know like like, like you know like you've you've probably had a Hitchens conversation at some point yeah. right you know but like. <laughs> Uh, that's a, that really got me thinking about this stuff. And, and basically what I want to do, uh, yeah, I've had, I've had that conversation with David numerous times, but, um, in basically what I wanted to do in this book was a couple things, which, uh, is one is just to kind of have a more balanced portrayal that you get either for the super fans, right. Mm-hmm. Or from people who just kind of want to denounce him because, you know, sometimes for good reasons, even right. To denounce him. Uh, but then, uh, but then I also wanted to say, look, there's this whole body of work from 1971, which is the first time there's a book with Christopher Hitchens' name on the cover. Fun fact: that book was a collection of essays by Marx and Engels of the Paris Commune, hmm. introduction by Christopher Hitchens, through 2001, uh, when he publishes Letters to Young Contrarian, which is really where he's starting to slip away from that you know yeah. socialist position. In those 30 years, he put out this body of work that I actually, like, I want to introduce this audience of young socialists who might not be familiar with it to it, who might only know him from the, you know, new atheism and neoconservative foreign policy positions period of his life. And then the last thing is that I want to explore, like, okay, as somebody who was doing really good work for a long time, but who clearly did take a disastrously long turn at the end, like, let's try to think a little bit harder about how that happened. No, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to reading the book. I've always enjoyed our conversations on that. I mean, I will say, you know, just, just, uh, and we're, we're going to talk about this in depth later, but like I have some of the old, uh, older kitchens collected essays, like, you know, from like the eighties to like 1992. Yeah. Right. And those are really great reads. They're very interesting. They're very left wing. Um, yeah. I, I think it is worthwhile to remind people that there was this other chapter because people know that he made the shift but people are sort of i think aren't as familiar with what happened before so i'm really looking forward to being able to read that well ben uh, thank you so much uh for hanging out um really looking forward to reading the book and see you around ben all right see you man see you all right y'all um we have a really fun segment coming up matt has a sort of i think we might bounce that to post game you think so what do you think 
Yeah, I mean, we're getting up there now. I think uh, it's... A- yeah, it makes sense. We went with Ben for a while. Yeah. Um, cool. So we'll do that in the post game. Um, I do just want to say right now, while we have you know public feed, I want, and this is another thing I had to get bumped for for time, but I just want to say again for people who have just joined in the post game too, we're also going to do a, a conversation on this reconciliation infrastructure bill. I'm just say my opinion on this is it has to be a no vote at this point. I mean, they have gutted everything worthwhile in it, and you can't continue playing this game um, with them. Make. The Democrats own this kind of thing, make cinema and mansion own it, and also start pointing fingers at all these people behind the scenes because what we're getting um, from you know publications like Politico, New York Times, Washington Post are these these accusations that there's plenty of other Democratic senators and Congress people um, who are very happy to see all of these more you know substantive. Um, parts of of the reconciliation infrastructure bill being gutted and not being the people who are sort of being forced to own it. So the progressives absolutely should be voting no on this, make that wing of the Democratic Party own this. Uh, I don't know. The stakes are way too high to be sitting around uh, with only spending $30 billion on kind of dubious uh, climate change proposals in the the first place. We need much, much, much more. And we need to be taking that fight directly to them. So anyways, we'll talk about that a little bit in the post game, talk about Peter Thiel, and we'll also be taking uh questions from the discord uh, so you can get access to all of that plus our bonus episode this weekend matt we'll gotta play we gotta play that annoying obama clip too where he i don't know if you've seen this one but he's like it's all your fault come on i I had i did not have the heart to watch it yet so we'll watch that live too it is so so inferior it's gonna be a jam-packed post game don't want to miss that join us over at patreon.com slash left reckoning you get the post games you get the bonus um episodes which come out on sundays Uh, you get the monthly think tank yeah, uh, I just want to plug our upcoming uh, show. We're going to be talking about Minneapolis politics. The patrons are going to get this probably Saturday, and we're going to release it, I think, early, at least portions of it for everybody else. So, you know, you can know how to vote um, for Minneapolis folks. But, um, but yeah, it is um, Jacob, and I want to get the podcast name right. I'm really excited um, uh, to be uh, – where did my DMs go? Oh, there they are. Okay. Um, yeah, so Jacob from – the MPLS money power uh, land solidarity uh, podcast um, MPLS. So uh, look forward to that patrons and public folks. You'll get that too. But if you want it earlier, if you want to want some listening on Saturday, uh, patreon.com slash left reckoning. Wonderful. I will right, we'll see you all in the post game.